Well, hi, this is Richard Swartz with the Information Security and Media Group, publishers of BankInfoSecurity.com and CUInfoSecurity.com. Today we'll be speaking with Bill Bonney, Vice President of Motorola Corporation and also the Corporate Information Security Officer. Bill has over 30 years of experience in the information security industry and is an officer in the ISACA organization. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Well, thank you for taking time to talk to our listeners today. I was wondering if you could start by describing what are some of the most significant cyber threats that are emerging today? Well, I think it's pretty apparent to those of us that, that live in the information protection domain that the transition from the era where most risks were technological and driven by hackers who were principally hobbyists or who were into the attacks against organizations for the notoriety that their achievements created are now being replaced with professional criminals and members of organized crimes and even uh, in some cases associated on the fringes of terrorist organizations, so they have a completely different motivation for the efforts they're undertaking. They're really now focusing increasingly on the parasitic extraction of value from the attacked organizations. And what this means is the kinds of defenses and the, the technical mechanisms and the processes we've had in the past are no longer sufficient to deal with the kinds of threats and risks that we're now all facing in the 21st century. What is facilitating those changes? We see both this change in the nature of hacking itself or criminal computer attacks, both technologically and also just in terms of our culture. What's, what's changing that's caused these changes? Well, I think part of it is the, the benefits of globalization is we're seeing increasingly that, that parts of the planet that were beyond the realm of connectivity are now part of the global uh, online Internet environment. And as a consequence, you have access that was never previously accessible and the, the, the wide variance in, in both the degree of skill, the nature of the experience available to the organizations that are providing that connectivity, as well as the personal motivations of the, the global population. I mean, it's well-known fact in crime statistics, uh, you know, if you take any given population of a given size, a small percentage, in fact, are going to be willing to create havoc or commit crimes and do things that are inappropriate. When you vastly increase the population that has access, you therefore vastly increase the potential for people who have those kinds of antisocial behaviors to be part of that online community and therefore make the effort to come after us. What about the rise in the sophistication level of malware itself? What's driving that? Well, I think it's, it's consistent with the, the emerging trend towards um, targeted attacks and extraction of value. The, uh, the, the original, back in the, when I started in this, this field in the 80s even, you know, the simple viruses, the monkey, the brain, those sorts of things uh, required spreading through means of, of floppy diskettes and, uh, you know, physically passing of device uh, drivers around. Uh, as we've gone to, um, you know, increasing use of standardized platforms, it makes it easier for the, the writers of those malware to set up common means and exploit common vulnerabilities. And then when you have that large population that's now getting access, in many cases uh, early in their experience and their learning curve, they remain vulnerable to the uh, attacks using social engineering and other mechanisms that might cause them to do something that they don't even realize is inappropriate. So the combination of 
you know, standardized platforms, standardized applications, much of which enables the e-business and online banking and other, other applications that we benefit from, also make it increasingly easier for the, the antisocial elements in the global community to attack those kinds of beneficial capabilities through what looks like otherwise official-looking email messages or uh, websites that have been uh, doctored or modified in some fashion to allow the downloading of Trojan software or other you know, key logging software or bot type of software that, that all can be used against the, the, the individual or against a financial institution or a business or other, other online organization. Well, how should banks or other financial institutions be preparing their incident response capabilities given this new threat picture? Well, I think what's going to happen is I, I think the, the sort of uh, community-based response model that, that has served well in the physical world is something that's, that's absolutely essential now in the cyber and online world. Um, in, increasingly, institutions need to be competing on the benefits that they can provide their particular customers or, or the communities they service, but there needs to be a willingness to share across boundaries the types of experience that have, that have uh, been detected and, and to build that consensus and that capability. Um, it, very, very important that we move beyond the idea that we have to just find the source of a problem and shut it down to we have to find the source of the problem, investigate how and why and where the, the problem was in, instituted into our environments, and then share that with law enforcement or other appropriate authority so that the, the community as a whole can become more resilient and more capable of dealing with these kinds of threats. Can you imagine, uh, again, it's, it's almost like you're dealing with serial killers in the physical world where if they move beyond a jurisdiction and there's no way of sharing the information, they can continue to commit their crimes almost indefinitely. We have to make sure that the cyber criminals um, are, in fact, their mechanisms are identified, their modus operandi is detected, and the teams that they have that information share it with the, with the appropriate authorized law enforcement or other agencies within their, their jurisdictions. Well, talking about response incidents, is it important for the, our financial institutions to possess cyber forensic capabilities themselves, or is this something that's better outsourced to specialized groups? Well, certainly I think there, there's pros and cons to, to any particular strategy. I think that depends on the institution, the size of the, their environment, and uh, the nature of uh, their IT uh, relationships, information technology relationships. Um, I, I believe that a certain basic level of capability is going to be a, a, a table stakes element of the technology organization's capabilities now in the 21st century. But you know, given a particular set of incidents or challenges that are very sophisticated or extensive or a particular uh, uh, surge in those uh, incidents, you're going to need access to additional capacity. Even a sophisticated organization like ours that has an internal capability also contracts with other organizations to either augment or supplement. And I say augment as in something that might be standard but we just have too much to, to process within the timeline that is necessary for our needs or to supplement in areas of specialized experience, knowledge, or skill that go beyond the, the normal platform elements that my team might be knowledgeable of. So I think the, the leaders of the, the technology and business management really need to consider what's the, you know, the right mix of internal retained and uh, on retainer external resources to meet their particular challenges. Well, Bill, are there critical success factors for the effective management or governance of incident response? Absolutely. I, I think governance is one of the, the perhaps less appreciated components of overall 
uh, effectiveness of information technology. My experience with ISACA when I was uh, in charge of the IT Governance Institute really opened my eyes as to the benefits of having structured processes that define you know, the performance measurements and allow the technology management team to communicate in business terms with their key stakeholders. Similarly, within the incident response and the security protection area, there's a need for that same kind of discipline and rigor and alignment to this, the values of the particular institution or organization. Um, left to their own devices, technology folks will do their best to do what they think is the right things the right way for the right reasons, but the governance process ensures that all the stakeholders are appropriately informed, have the ability to exercise the appropriate oversight and provide direction and guidance to ensure that the team delivers the results that are necessary for that organization. Well, is there a key lesson that you've learned in your 30-year career that you could pass on to our listeners in terms of how best to protect their intangible assets? Well, I think the first lesson is to have someone who actually is responsible for this from an operating perspective. Uh, traditionally, and, and necessarily within the, the U.S. Uh, um, legal and regulatory community, lawyers have to play a key role in intellectual property protection because they are, in fact, the most knowledgeable about the laws. However, to augment that legal expertise requires a specialized set of skills and experience that deal with the operating mechanisms that exist within information technology, that exist within the traditional physical or corporate security functions, that understand the HR, human resources, um, capabilities and limitations of policy and process. So the combination of having the right policy, process, awareness, and technologies is really the, the way to manage the risk to those assets that, that in the 21st century are increasingly the nature of how competitive advantage is gained and maintained. So having people that have that skill set, having the accountabilities for that, will go a long way towards building the program to be responsive to the new challenges to those assets. Well, what skill set should a information security officer be looking for in new candidates today? Well, I think as with uh, many technology leadership functions, it's increasingly important to be well-grounded in the business of the organization. If the staff members can be part of a banking community, uh, they need to understand how banks work, how, how they generate their profits, how they serve their customers, the, the value that they create in the communities they serve. Absent that kind of grounding, um, there's the risk that a purely academic set of solutions might be implemented or advocated that could really be harmful to the ability of that organization to, to serve its constituents and, and stakeholders. So being well-grounded in business as well as having a solid technical foundation and then a willingness to learn and adapting and grow with the challenges that we're going to face. This is a very dynamic field. Saying that you've done this uh, 20 years ago in a mainframe environment, therefore you're, you're well-skilled to deal with the mobility challenges of the 21st century, unless you've been investing in time, in training, keeping up with the, the various developments, both in the hardware and software, as well as in the societal dimensions of how technology is used, or people run the risk of becoming obsolete in their skill set. So having people who are willing to grow, willing to learn, is a key part of that skill set as well. Well, how do you evaluate the state of information security today? How good of a job are we doing at winning the war? Well, I'd say the good news is we understand that the challenge is not about buying just the latest and greatest hardware or software and that that's going to be sufficient. The difficulty, I think, in many cases is that executive managements are still stuck in the 20th century risk management uh, 
mindset. We have most executive leaders of today grew up and again gained their experience in the 20th century. Whenever things, the fastest they existed was at the speed of fax. It was fax uh, information around. That was you know, when they were getting their experience. They have a an, a very good heuristic understanding of risk associated with fire, flood, uh, civil disturbances, you know, the damage to to operations and institutions in those contexts. I do not think. 20th century executives are quite yet skillful and haven't yet developed the gut instincts as to the real nature, extent, speed, and, and the, the, the consequences that can attend to serious cyber incidents. As a consequence, that's an area where I think we're going to have a lot of learning take place. We've started to see that in some of the retail organizations where they've been hacked, you know, value has been extracted, tens of millions of consumers' credit cards, information exposed to criminals or others for, for unknown purposes. And you know, there's a sort of amusement on the part of management saying, well, how did this come to be and what was, what was going on? So the challenge, I, I believe, in the 21st century is really that we've got to get senior managements within businesses, within banks, within other organizations, in government as well, to understand that this really is an area that warrants ongoing attention, it requires resourcing, and that failure to do so uh, that will in fact expose the organization to the, to the kinds of adverse brand impact and, and consumer confidence losses that the worst uh, physical incidents did in the 20th century. Well, thank you for your time today, Bill. It's been great information. It's always a pleasure to be part of the community. Well, thank you for listening to another podcast with the Information Security Media Group. To listen to a selection of other podcasts or to find other educational content regarding information security for the banking and finance community, you can visit www.bankinfosecurity.com or www.cuinfosecurity.com.